1: Hello and welcome to The Political Party. In this episode I'm delighted to be joined by a rare returning guest Deborah Mattinson from Britain Thinks. And as with last time talking to Deborah this is just there's so much detail and analysis in here. It is packed. And this is this isn't just about why the Tories won, why Labour won. This is about this is about social undercurrents. This is about what the country really thinks, what different parts of the country really think. It's absolutely endlessly wonderful and enlightening and just energizing talking to someone who, who has this insight it's like a mind reading exercise it's phenomenal how much she knows about the country and about our behaviors particularly obviously when it comes to voting but my word if anyone listening to this is working on the campaigns for the labor leadership candidates you have to you there's so much in this that will help you and I'm sure some of the candidates themselves are listening which firstly, hello and secondly, this is a they're serving this up as a as a service really to the Labour Party we talk about the Lib Dems and the Tories and other things as well but really this is um, so many lessons in here this is just absolutely endlessly fascinating so I'm going to stop waffling um, I began by asking Deborah what the top lines of her research were coming out of that election
0: So, actually, I think the first thing to say, um, and I think it is important to land this, is that what we've been witnessing is quite a long-term decline for the Labour Party. So, it wasn't all about what happened in the months or even the years running up to, you know, twenty nineteen December. Uh, it, it actually has been happening for quite a long time. I think there are a number of things that have been eroding for a while so 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 that's the first thing to say the, the the things that have been going wrong for a long time are the the party brand if you like you know is this a party for me mm. and with a lot of voters actually they're looking at it and thinking no it's not and they've been thinking that for quite a while I mean you know one of the things I've done in focus groups is if this party were a person what kind of person would they be? And one of the things I like to is what would be their their come dine with me dinner that yes. they would cook. Okay, so back in the day when I first started doing work for Labour uh, in the sort of late eighties, it was a pie and a pint. It was okay. very straightforward. You know, yeah. it was just what you might eat yourself. Um, it later morphed into not a pie, but. Sausage en croute. <laughs> and not a not a pint, but some kind of, you know, craft beer that was that was honed in a in a brewery in in Chalk Farm or something. <laughs> now it's quinoa. Mm. And, you know, I think that that is telling you something about how a lot of people, particularly traditional Labour Party voters, are looking at the brand. That's been a long time coming Uh, as has and and connected to that is the sort of weakening coalition that that that, you know, all political parties depend on a coalition of voters to see them over the wire. Um, You know, it's not like you're you're typical voter is one type of person you need to bring people together over a shared set of values and objectives and sense of purpose and I think that that has been fragmenting also for a long time Um, the third thing I think is economic competency so when I first started working with labor in the late 80s it was the biggest problem that labor faced yes and for labor to win in 97 even in 97 labor did not get ahead on the economy in fact we're still slightly behind people forget that although later got ahead, and, and that's how Labour came to win again in 2001 and 2005. 2010 was a problem following the financial crisis, and I think that's been a downhill slide back to what you might regard as a natural state of affairs, which is voters struggle to trust Labour with their money. So that's, you know, that's a long-term thing as well. And then the final point is, is, is weak leadership. The single most important thing in winning an election is having a leader that people like and want to represent them and the country. And Labour hasn't had that for quite a long time now.
1: So just to take the first point, this, this, this sense of a long-term decline of the Labour brand and its relationship with the public, that is the argument that people like Jeremy Corbyn and people loyal to him are saying, as well, look, this is basically like coastal erosion. This has just been happening. Now, yeah.
0: is it... But they didn't do very much about it well, or to the,
1: address it, and that's... Well, yeah. that's the thing, is that that, that that could have been challenged. Yes, By a change in behaviour. Now, what they say is, well, look, this basically started under Tony Blair. You know, he lost, we started losing votes back then. And, you know, no leader since has been able to stop that. So, in a way, Corbyn's analysis has a grain of truth to it.
0: Well, it does, but what I would say, if, if we fast forward to where we are now and what happened in the last few years, you know, the, if you like the Corbyn period, I think what we saw is a really dramatic acceleration of those long-term problems. So rather than doing something to address or try to address those problems, we've seen that you know them, them accelerating and getting much, much worse really quite quickly.
1: In terms of the cultural values that, that run underneath not just this election, but, but society. Of course, the economy is a big one, but there is a sense as well, having read your research, that people don't identify with the Labour Party in, in, in quite a, a broad yeah. way, like social values, the yeah. things that they value. I mean, what are they, apart from the economy, what, what are the social undercurrents that, yeah. have, that have led to this? So,
0: I mean, one of the things that we did after this most recent election was to... So we interviewed a lot of undecided voters through the campaign, and then we went back... To some of those who we knew had been long-standing Labour voters who had then voted Tory, and asked them why, and I think the first thing to say was that a lot of them felt very sad about that decision, and almost felt that they were letting down their forefathers by by yeah. by doing. You know, I mean, some of the quotes were things like, you know, I come from mining stock. You know, if my grandfather knew that I'd voted Tory, he'd be spinning in his grave. I mean, people were were really upset about it but there was a feeling that they had no choice uh, that that they were so concerned about what Labour might do to the country um, were Labour to win that they just felt it was a risk they couldn't take the jury is now out on what they do next of course and that's the $64,000 question
1: In terms of Labour's manifesto um, Labour's great at telling itself that in 2017 it had this popular um, set of ideas just on 2017 are they right when they say that manifesto was popular with the public? The 2017 manifesto?
0: No, <laughs> no. I mean, most. If, if you put a gun to most people's head and say, "Tell us what was in that manifesto," they wouldn't have a clue. And people don't read manifestos; they have no idea. So, um, what, what what Labour had going for it in 2017 was an absolutely dreadful Tory leader, uh, and and actually, you know, Jeremy Corbyn at that point was what not well known to the public as well. So they gave him a bit of benefit of the doubt, really.
1: And this time, um, in terms of Labour's manifesto, now people will not have read the manifesto, but they might have... How, ma- how many of the big policies do you think people knew? Things like nationalising rail, mail, water and electricity or the four-day week?
0: Uh, most people would perhaps be able to name one or two. Um, what they, they There was really just a sense that there was a lot of stuff. You know, <laughs> a lot of... It's a sort of cornucopia of things being thrown at them. And... And it felt very reckless. It felt that, that they hadn't been costed properly. That I mean, people were being offered things they didn't know they wanted. People <laughs> said to me in focus groups, w- you know, this free Wi-Fi thing, what's that all about? <laughs> they had literally no idea. Um, and, and I think it was a problem. And it's, you know, I mean, less is more when it comes to a policy offer. I mean, one of the most successful campaigns I've, uh, campaigns I've worked on is the 97 campaign. I did... All the work testing the policies that would go into the pledge card, yeah, and that was incredibly important, and it was very contained. there were a very small number of policies that were if you like, each policy was designed to be symbolic of Labour's offer in that policy area, but there was no need to tell them everything you do about the nhs you if you told them the one thing they cared most about, which was shorter waiting times, then other stuff would be presumed, and that yes. was that was how it worked, and it was fine and and also labor spent a lot of you know they were very very effective campaigners and and weren't afraid to repeat themselves and to say the same thing again and again and i found that 2 weeks into the campaign i would say to people okay if labor were to win in may what would they do and people could literally list the policies on that pledge card now you know that would not happen now um the, the Tories had a much tighter... I mean, it was a sort of manifesto light. But there were a couple of things that stood out. Obviously, get Brexit done, mm. um, which was, you know, straight out of the focus group playbook uh, and, and the nurse pledge. And people people got that and it was fine. And they didn't feel that, you know, they were being overpromised or oversold.
1: With some of Labour's policies, for instance, nationalising rail, people say, actually, that polls quite well as a, as a policy in itself. Why haven't Labour been able to marry popularity for the policy with popularity for the party?
0: I would say, actually, with some of those policies, you can run a poll that says, would you like this to happen or not? And and, and the sort of superficial answer is yes. Um, What I know from other work I've done is that, actually, if you dig a bit deeper and tell people what trade-offs are actually involved if you do that... I mean, it's very costly to do that Mm. kind of nationalisation programme. It's not a priority for lots of people. Um, Rail, perhaps more so than some of the other things that that, that they mentioned. But, you know, actually, once people really understand what it means, then I think some of that popularity fades away. But it is anyway not a priority. It's about understanding what those priorities are and talking about those.
1: And I suppose with questions like nationalising rail, people aren't necessarily answering that question. What they're answering is, I'd like cheaper rail. Right, they like might better assume, rail well, exactly, yeah, yes
0: yeah but they don't necessarily know what's the best way to do that uh, yeah I think that's right I and labor I-
1: in this campaign perhaps didn't even talk about why nationalizing rail was desirable or, or trying to sell it they in didn't any way. attempt
0: to make the case so far as I heard anyway I mean and I don't think anybody was aware of that I think if you if you feel that's a very important thing to do to deliver better better rail services for people, then I think you need to make the case and you need to make it clear why that's a priority and why investing in that is a priority for you rather than investing in other things. In the end, it is about choices. It's about the choices you make as a a political party and as political leaders and those choices need to chime with people's priorities or you're lost.
1: And do you know, (laughs) we might not know this, were Labour focus group in this stuff? Were you aware that they were testing this stuff out with voters at all?
0: I, I've i honestly no idea. I presume they must have been. It would have be been very odd if they weren't. I think so, but I don't know. So then you can they ignored
1: what people would have been saying. I guess so. Because I guess so. the um, one thing I've been really struck by is, um, oh, and I've kicked myself for forgetting his name, but the guy who used to work for Theresa May, as the focus groups on Channel 4. James Johnson. Yes. Yeah was one of the things that I found really fascinating during this Labour leadership contest was when he asks these these are ex-Labour voters who voted Tory, um, uh, or voted Tory for the first time, I think, in, in this election, for the leadership, the most popular were Jess Phillips and Lisa Nandy, and the two least popular were Rebecca Long-Bailey and Keir Starman. I was quite... Shots. I haven't actually seen that. I must. I must watch it. But I think it's quite hard
0: when people don't know very much about the people. And I, I presume he showed them clips of film or, or something. So yes. it's a very kind of impressionistic.
1: Based on thing. that one clip, really, yes.
0: Um, certainly, you know, Jess Phillips and Lisa Nandy are both quite engaging. I can see that people might look at them and say, "Yeah, they they seem nice." I, I don't. I mean, I, I haven't watched the, the focus group, so I don't know what he did. Um, but people would. What I do know from my own work is that people, as we stand now, have almost no knowledge of any of them.
1: And do people so have any Blank preference to, to names? Them. Do people say, oh, if they had Keir Starmer I'd have vote for them, or if they had Lisa Nandy or Jess?
0: I've heard the Keir Starmer thing said a bit. I think he's probably the best known of of the remaining candidates, and he seems sensible to people, Um so I've heard that a little bit, but I think, you know, the overriding thing, we found actually when we did this follow-up piece with the people who'd switched um, to Tory, we were quite keen to explore with them who would be the best leader, and we couldn't get anywhere with that um, because people didn't know enough about any of them. And so we, we in the end, we were like, well, what would the ideal leader be like? What would be the qualities that they would have to have? And what do they say? They need to understand me, people like me um so you know quote they they need to be someone who understands what's going on in the uk and what the general public want from government they need to be less extreme than the last lot And, and another quote they need to be where tony blair was in his party it was more center under corbyn it was so left wing it was quite unbelievable that was that was another quote um They need to be strong and charismatic. And actually, the biggest thing, I think, was this sort of X factor thing, Mm. which people find quite hard to define. But but something that stands out uh, in that person as a leader and draws people to them. And and actually, on the whole, they do think that Boris Johnson
1: has that. Well, this is the thing that I think a lot of people in politics forget is you're, you're choosing. It's not just about a battle of ideas. You're choosing effectively the most effective person to run an entire country. And there is a sense that that person should be quite impressive, that if we're picking as a society the one person for the job, yeah. Yeah. there's a sort of subconscious belief. Yeah. You think, well, they, they must, they has to have something about yeah. them.
0: Yeah, and, and it's, it is about they're representing you. They're yeah. representing you to the rest of the world as well. And people are quite patriotic, and that really matters. One of the things we found when we were looking at, at, at Jeremy Corbyn was that people described him a lot with one word, and the word was scruffy. I mean wow. actually I don't think he is that scruffy but I think what they were saying was he is not somebody who is fit to represent me on the international stage when we said you know if he, one of the things I like to do is say if somebody wasn't a politician if this politician wasn't a politician what would their career be and they said he'd be an archaeologist sorry if there's any
1: archaeologists
0: <laughs> listening that's but a good job <laughs> it's a good job but it's one that people are very scruffy
1: <laughs> <laughs> I bet you think he looks like sort of, well, I was sort going to say Bill Audie, but <laughs> kind of Tony Robinson would have been but yeah. <laughs> he's, Tony Robinson isn't scruffy. There's a bit in your one of your slides in your presentation, which is available. People can get this yes, on the internet. Yeah, it's on the website. Yeah. Um, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's fascinating to read, but the, the word cloud, you know, the words that people yes, associate with them, and it isn't. Yeah. What's odd is um, weak seems to be big, um, but simultaneously sincere is big. Um, fair comes up a lot. Honest, confused, scruffy, socialist, bland. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. a real mix of yeah. either... He's bland or he's extreme. It seems odd that you could be both.
0: Yeah, it's. I, I mean, he didn't seem to be a very strong. Going back to the thing about the X factor, he didn't have that. Jeremy Corbyn hasn't got that in the eyes of the general public. I mean, he may have in the eyes of Labour members, um, but they didn't feel that he was a sort of charismatic leader. Certainly, uh, and they felt, yeah, they felt worried about him representing them. But they didn't. I mean, they. They felt he was a decent man. Um, One of the things that I think actually in the deck we show a word cloud that was generated out of words that people said, you know, ahead of 2017 and then now. And one of the things that had changed as people had got to know him more was... Some of the backstory, which which I think that the press tried to land on him in 2017, and it didn't really work. People looked at him and didn't see this is a guy that would, you know, hang out with the IRA or whatever yeah. whatever it was that they're trying to, you know, pin on him. But people were more familiar with those stories by 2019, and I think it was quite damaging. I think it definitely sort of eroded some of his, some um, you know, his positive image. I mean, you know, he went into that election as the most unpopular leader of the opposition since polling began to measure that. That's quite something.
1: People sympathetic to to Jeremy Corbyn would say, but this is the result of the media being anti-Labour and particularly anti-Corbyn. So the lesson they might want to learn is not just that, well, not at all that it was necessarily his fault. It was the way he was treated made leadership an issue. Do you think there's any truth to that?
0: Yeah, but it's always been thus. I mean... Yeah, that's something that you have to deal with. And actually, in a way, there's more control now over media, uh, with with social media and the way that you can use that, uh, than there has been in the past. So, yeah, I think, of course, that's true. But don't use it as an excuse.
1: Deal with it. Um, Rebecca Long-Bailey's part of her analysis is that um, the agenda was fine. The policies were OK. The communication was the issue the idea that actually you could represent the 2019 manifesto in a different way and actually you, you might be able to cut it through. Do you think there's any truth to that?
0: I think, you know, as we've already discussed, the underlying Labour's problems is this, this concern about their economic competence. And I think that whoever did the sums and people do the sums, adding up, you know, journalists will do it for you if you don't do it yourself – it didn't add up and people could see that and there was just this sense that there was too much and I suppose what you could have done would be to pick one or two things and certainly I would agree that Labour's communications I mean one of the things that I think Labour needs to change is simply to be more professional you know Labour did not run a professional campaign Labour's ground organisation was poor you know they took people away from seats that they subsequently went on to lose and put them in seats like Uxbridge that they were never going to win yeah. mad. Gold green. Um, yeah, gold green. mad 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 so that was really Bad and and the communications. I mean, I I agree with her. It was very poor. We did um, we did a big project where we brought together a uh, hundred or so kind of undecided voters in one location uh, on the Monday before before the camp before the before polling day, and said to them, right, you know, one of the things we asked them was, okay, think about the campaign, think about what you've heard. Going to count to three. Chant out. We had, you know, all these people in the room. (laughs) Any slogan you can remember. One, two, three, and as one, they chanted out, "Get Brexit done." Wow. So we said, "Okay, right. That's the Tories' campaign theme." Now, going to count to three. (laughs) Want you to shout out Labour's campaign theme. One, two, three, and there was a sort of silence, and then you just heard a few, you know, different things. People would start something and trail it off, and you know something about change or, you know, people <laughs> just had no idea and nothing had landed. And it's hard. People, you know, people don't t- pick up very
1: much anyway. So for the for the sample for the work that you were doing, sorry to skip around here, was this specifically ex-Labour voters who voted Conservative for the first time? Was this a whole cross-section? So
0: um, all the way through the campaign, we were listening to undecided voters. Yeah. But what we then did, because we, we were tracking their behaviour through the campaign and then what they how they actually voted so then following that we did a small scale piece of work where we we did some depth interviews with people who had uh, you know been previous Labour voters but had switched to the Tories to understand why so that was that was that was the extra piece that we did so it was it was quite small scale we did it straight after
1: um that you know after after the uh, the campaign and for the undecided voters why were they undecided, and what was what were the factors that made them decide?
0: So I mean, I think it's it's easy now, and the Tories, as we stand, are in the most recent poll put them twenty points ahead on forty nine percent. Um you know, it's you know, they're in a sort of afterglow. um great. Um, but it's easy to forget that actually, for most of the campaign, a lot of undecided voters, were very troubled about what they were going to do and very concerned about the choice in front of them. They felt it was a very important election, um, which is why turnout didn't really drop. But they were agonised, and a lot of people, we know this took their decision making right up to the wire and said to us, we've never done this before. I'd normally have decided long before I'd have gone in knowing or, you know, I might have might have listened a bit to the beginning of the campaign. But, I, you know, I made my mind up quite quickly. They didn't know. And and it was summed up for me by by one quote that we got from one person, in a focus group who said it's this time. It's not about who you agree with most. It's who you disagree
1: with least. Mm.
0: Because they felt that what was on offer was poor.
1: So even though voters think Boris Johnson has the X factor and he has that charismatic um, yeah. gap between him and Corbyn, still deep concerns about him perhaps as a prime minister. Big
0: concerns. And I mean, even with these people who, you know, had voted Tory, going back to them afterwards, we said, why did you? What did you feel? And, you know, yes, he, he is charismatic. Another really important thing, he painted quite a positive vision. They felt that he was sort of upbeat. Whereas they felt that whenever they heard anybody from Labour, including Corbyn, it was very moany. They spent a lot of time talking about what was wrong and wringing their hands and didn't sort of seem to have a solution. Um, But he, you know... I mean, you might have felt it was oversimplistic, but he, you know, he I've, had yeah. he had an answer. But they also felt worried about him. And one of the things they said when we said, what do you hope will happen now? They said, well, you know, I do hope that he will mature a bit in the job and that he will be more responsible and reliable. We found that he was a very divisive politician in the campaign. So when we asked, you know, if he was a fictitious character, a fictional character, yeah. what would he be? And there was a big divide. If you were a, a Remain voter, you were very worried about him and you saw him like Homer Simpson in The Power Room. You know, what, <laughs> what, what button I meant to press now? What was it I was meant to do? Sort of chaotic and dangerous. Yeah. But if you were a Leave voter, you saw him as this rather sort of dashing James Bond figure. Oh my word. Yes. Yes. I mean, one of my colleagues coming back from doing focus groups and she said, there were a lot of kind of older women in in, in this photo. They, they they clearly quite fancied him.
1: Wow! I know that's what we all said. Oh man! <laughs> I mean, I, I know look, there's someone out there for everyone, but crikey! <laughs> My word! I, I, I would, know. I would never have thought sort of sexual desire. I mean, if, if you ever, if you ever you know people say oh you know politics all about PR you know someone with a beard doesn't win unless they run against someone else with a beard a bald man only ever yeah, a bald man or you mustn't be short or whatever Are they, is, is yeah. there something to that have you ever measured sexual attraction in terms of voting behaviour no <laughs>
0: <laughs> probably yeah
1: I would be slightly maybe, shocked if you had
0: maybe you know that'll be a project for the future
1: <laughs> <laughs> well I saw somebody it's one of those things where you go has the best looking person always won the election I was just think about it quite quickly um, the one um, that actually makes me think a bit is Cameron and Brown, because I think Brown actually's quite a good-looking guy. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. But you think Tony Blair better looking than William Hague, probably? Better looking than Michael Howard? I think. Better looking than um, John Major? I think let's not go there. Let's not go, not go there. there. No, no, no. So, that's a dead end. Fair dues. <laughs> there's this there's, there's sort of fear about Boris This sense that it was a poor choice really poor choice um, and people
0: were really worried really worried about the choice in front of
1: them And it, so just in terms of leave and remain yeah. um, Boris obviously had a strategy to try and unite the leave vote and he did a deal with Nigel Farage which helped helped him a lot I think uh, do you think um, without that deal he'd have got a smaller majority yes I'm sure he would Yeah,
0: yes it, it, without doubt it, it was very helpful to him and a lot of the seats that he picked up, that you know, you might not have expected him to pick up, were ones that you know, Farage wouldn't have contested. And no, I think I think that's right. I think he did. I think he did well.
1: Uh, and a lot of people, obviously sympathetic, sympathetic to Jeremy Corbyn, said, well, "Look, this was a Brexit election, and you know, it was basically like a weather event that was out of our control, and Brexit's the main reason we lost." Do you think that is fair?
0: No. I don't. I mean, I think it was obviously a factor, um,
1: and I think you know. Again, this is not
0: something that happened in the campaign. This is something that had happened over a period of time. Was Labour uh, not not having clarity, and particularly Jeremy Corbyn's own view not being very clear? They were worried about him saying, "I'm not going to say how I'm going to vote," or you know, they were they were really concerned about that. They they wanted to see some leadership, and they didn't feel they'd seen it. But one of actually one important thing to say going back to people feeling very concerned about uh, the the choice ahead and what that, you know, what that meant. The thing that they were most concerned about, though, was ending up with the hung parliament. Because what they felt really frustrated about was this sense of stasis, the mm. sense that we were in this, you know, we were locked in this situation where we couldn't as a country move forward. And that was what, you know, the, the Tories campaign theme, get Brexit done, dot, 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 brackets, so we can get on and do those other things. People were very worried about the opportunity cost, about, you know, I'm worried about crime, I'm worried about health, I'm worried about all these things and nobody's talking about them. And they really, really were concerned. I remember doing one focus group where somebody said, you know what, if there's a hung parliament again, then basically we should just do a penalty shootout and just <laughs> decide, just get the two leaders and we'll just be done with it. You know, if it's OK to to, to, to determine the World Cup like that, yeah. then it's fine for us too, because they would prefer anything than another sort of sense of being just stuck in this you know, we can't move forward, can't do the things we care about.
1: And that's why that slogan's so effective because it's not yes. just appealing to leavers, it's appealing to people who are frustrated with the
0: Yeah, and certainly, the limbo. I mean, you know, we know that, that in the end, a lot of Remain voters came around and, and, and felt the same. I mean, it was quite interesting that, at, at Britain Thinks, one of the things we've done is this Brexit diaries project. Yes. Um, in fact, we're about to do the final, final wave. We're going back to some of the original diarists who, who started keeping diaries for us immediately, you know, around the time of Article Great. 50 being triggered to see how, how they view the process. We're doing some polls uh, poll and, and, and some focus groups. So we're going to be looking at that. Um, but, you know, we 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 looking at what people feel about about Brexit has been really interesting because what we've found is that People, even people who voted Leave, have been saying, to be honest, I sort of wish we'd never gone gone there in the first place. Oh, because it's because it's just been so damaging and so divisive. And then, on the other hand, people who voted Remain saying, I now just want to be done with it. Yeah, and if that means Leave, then let's just
2: support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. Visit com slash AI for people to learn more.
1: So for Labour, it, it was obviously difficult for them because Boris Johnson is a Brexiteer, he's selling Brexit. That They won the referendum, so there's a natural majority in the country. Slender though it might be, but nevertheless, on his side of the argument. For Labour, what would the best policy position have been, do you think? On Brexit? Yeah. I mean, I suppose in
0: the end, they gingerly edged towards perhaps the best that they could have given what had happened over the last couple of years. I mean I think things might have been very different if Labour had actively supported Remain actually during the referendum but I mean I've no way of proving that but you know given how close it was I my feeling is that if Jeremy Corbyn had been out there and championing the Remain Cause, then maybe we'd never have got into this situation in the first place. But we don't know, that's speculation.
1: So Labour's best bet really was to have a second referendum policy, but maybe they should have shouted By about the By the time
0: more. they got to where they got to, I don't think there was very much else that they could do. Yeah.
1: And maybe it was it was it's not just um, the ambiguity about it, but the fact they left it so late was probably fatal.
0: Yes, I think so. I think I think the fact that it took so long to broker the internal agreement to get them to the place that they got that they lost a lot of time, and I think that was a problem. I, I mean, just one thing. Just I mean, I'm going back. I'm slightly repeating myself here, but I think it is just worth stressing, though, the problems in those red wall seats were not caused by Brexit. Mm. Brexit shone a light on problems that already existed. I think, and I think it's just really
1: important not to forget that. So there were. You know, these problems were already there. And problems such as a, a, a patriotic disconnect between Labour and these people? Yeah, a cultural the, cult- the
0: cultural disconnect, the feeling that, um, you know, back to the quinoa thing. I mean, this this was the quinoa thing came out of some focus groups that I ran in Crewe actually a couple of years ago. And people said, you know, Labour used to be the party of the working man. You know, now it's the party of people living in Islington, um, you know, living in sort of posh houses um, who eat quinoa. But Tony
1: Blair was seen a bit like that. Yeah, but I mean, he, it still started... able, he, st- he was still able to win.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, you, it, but it, it started there. And I mean, you know, I think you could say that the Labour government didn't do enough to recognise those problems when they were, you know, they were coming quite slowly down the track, mm. but they were there. Um, and I think maybe Labour didn't do enough, um, and that's a whole thing. And you know, it's about, about the structural economy of our country. It's about the feeling that that London gets so much and other places get so little. It's about infrastructure
1: and connection. It's lots of things. Is it also about social values? Is, are these places, even though they were Labour for things like jobs and wages, actually are some of the undercurrents are, are quite small, quite seat con- conservative.
0: Quite conservative, and you know, a, a lot of those seats have relatively older populations, partly, but of course it's connected to the economy because, you know, your kids or your grandkids have had to leave the constituency that they were born in because they couldn't get a job there. So, you know, it it does all join
1: up in the end. And one of the things in your research is that age is probably the biggest... It's the biggest
0: thing, and of course it's age and education, and the two correlate because the younger you are, the more likely you are to be highly educated. Um... And, and what we don't know now, there was always a presumption. I mean, Labour has always done well with younger people. But the presumption was that, you know, once, once those younger people got older, got their own property, got their own family, they started to move towards the Tories. Of course, that's not happening now. People mm. aren't able to buy their own homes. So, it, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the future with that. Because 39 was the age at the last election at which you became more likely to vote Tory.
1: So the crossover age. 39. And it was
0: 47, actually, so it's come down a little bit. When was it 47? It was 47 in 2017. So even in two years? Well, that I mean, bear in mind, you know, in 2017, um, it was a hung parliament. Yeah. By 2019, you have, I don't know that it qualifies as a landslide because in my book that means you have to have a majority more than 100 but i mean i don't know what i don't there's a formal definition of this (laughs) but but you know i mean certainly they did well
1: so but that dramatic drop in the in the in the crossover age from 47 in 2017 to to 39 in 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 in, in 2019 it says something doesn't it yeah i mean is is that a trend now i mean next time is that going to Become even lower. Well, I mean, that, who knows?
0: Who knows? I mean, that is that. You know what what happens next? I think is
1: is really curious. And you know, but looking back to say 2015, 2010, two thousand and five, and back, is that is that a trend that the crossover age is getting younger, or has it been volatile throughout history?
0: Uh, the crossover age had got older, um, I think, and then has become
1: younger again. Okay, so it, so it's it's moved around a little bit. Yeah, And with education, and and we've had a lot of this around the Brexit referendum, the, the danger with that is basically saying clever people vote Remain and clever people vote Labour and people who don't understand <laughs> stuff vote Leave and, and vote Conservative. It can't be as simple as that.
0: No, it isn't. And I mean, it's, you know, obviously, uh, you know, a, a young person in their 20s now who happens to have a degree is not necessarily cleverer than an older person who worked as a minor. Or of yes, that is not. very true. Yes. I mean, nobody's going to say that. But there is something about a set of values that, uh, you know, that, that definitely are attributed to younger people. It's urban as well. It's people living in cities. And that's where Labour is piling up votes. And when, you know, any analysis of the election that we've just seen, Will tell you that Labour was stockpiling votes in places where it didn't need them.
1: That it where it was held. already
0: going to win. Yeah. yeah. And they're not managing to get over the wire in those more marginal places.
1: Or in places that had been heartlands before. So the, yes. the cities were the heartland, but then the mining areas. So what's the difference then between the city, you know, you think of places like Manchester and Liverpool that still are, are rock solid Labour and places like Bolsover that were rock-solid Labour. Is it that yeah. difference between the geography of these places? I,
0: I think it is about... Yeah, I think it's exactly that. It, Liverpool is really interesting because, I mean, I think if you look at the top ten Labour seats I mean, in terms of share of vote, I think six of them, five or six of them, are, are Liverpool constituencies. It's yeah. extraordinary. Um, and I think that that is that is the difference. Um you know, when you look at this, it's, it's, it's a town thing. I know this is something that Lisa Nandi talks about mm. a, a lot, and I think that analysis is, is, is right.
1: Lisa Nandi also says one of her policies <clears throat> is reinvigorate the high street, and that's the answer to this. I mean, obviously, I'm sort of asking you for your personal opinion. I'm not sure if there's mm. any polling around this. I mean, mm. do, people, do people cite the decline of the high street as a reason why their vote they might do. change?
0: I don't know if it's the reason why their vote might change, but they certainly cite it. It's, it you know, it's one of the symbols. There are a number of symbols that of of you know of failure, if you like, in my local area. It's about you know young people and jobs. It's about what employers there are. It's about it's about the high street, and you you see it. You know, if you go to somewhere like Doncaster, you get off the train. Every other shop is boarded up. The cinemas boarded up. You know, it yeah. has a feeling of decline and decay, and that's obviously not good. So, you know, yeah, that, then, that does make a difference. But then
1: they're not blaming the people who've been in government for the last ten years for it. Which is interesting. Well, is that what they're doing, or is
0: it simply that when they looked at the choice, they felt that and as I've said before, it was a sort of it was a difficult choice of people. They didn't like what was on offer. Either way, very much. But maybe they felt that it would just be a bit better with that right. lot than that lot, that there was a bit more chance of sort of getting getting through it. But this, I mean, I think a lot of these are, are these are the questions that we're going to be very preoccupied with. As you know, in, in the, the long run up to the next election, and it will be a long run up. Yeah. Um and that's you know I mean can I plug my book a little of bit? Of course, here oh, we, we're going to
1: absolutely <laughs> talk about the book. <laughs> Fear not, that was going to be a, so. A large but part I think it, it really
0: does relate to this because basically those red wall seats and what is going to happen is something that I want to really focus on so that's what that's what my book is going to be about and I'm going to be going into some of those constituencies listening to people sort of moving in with them if you like spending time with them shadowing them on their day understanding where they are and what I you know I want to really get a sense of who those voters are why they switched and you know what the Tories have to do to keep them and what Labour has to do to win them back.
1: So the book is specifically about these Red Walls. It's specifically about the Red
0: Wall. It's going to be called Beyond the Red Wall.
1: And uh, are there particular profiles of people you already have in mind that you want to... Is it going to be like single white men, that sort of thing? Or well, yeah, it's it funny. Conflict? The
0: single white men thing is a bit
1: odd. Uh, a sort of working to man, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, suppose, Yeah,
0: so. that, that that was the working to man thing, wasn't it? And I don't know why he was single. But, I mean, <laughs> well, <laughs> it, 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 maybe we frumpy, do know hey? why he's single. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it, I, what I want to do is get typical voters and, and really focus on people who were, if you like, long-standing Labour voters who switched to understand that. Um, so I mean I'm going to go certainly into three constituencies maybe more I haven't got very much time but I'm going to do as much as I've got time to do Um, and you know can really understand um, where those voters are at and use that to try to predict what might happen next
1: With some of Labour's messaging and and the slogans they choose and the language they choose they've tried to sort of transplant Bernie Sanders language into the campaign and, and since talking about millionaires and billionaires does that resonate with people in red wall seats?
0: Um, I don't know that it does. To be honest, I think I think it's always a bit difficult to make it so. You know, people are aspirational. I mean, obviously, people know. You know, nobody, not many people are aspirational about being billionaires. <laughs> yes. In fairness, um, and people want to see fair opportunity, and you know that, that rich people pay taxes and so on. But I think a sort of bash the rich policy has never worked very
1: well for Labour no so the, the class war elements that were kind of in some of the maybe some of the outriders more than some of the key figures but you did say, I remember seeing Shami Chakrabarti on the telly saying you know these posh boys the Eton posh boys for well, me given I, that those Red matter. Wall voters
0: chose in the end <laughs> an Eton posh boy yeah. Yeah. over Labour's own mm. man I think speaks volumes actually because
1: I never um, I grew up in a council out a single parent family on benefits in the 1980s and that's what made me labour thinking that the world was unfair but i was never it would just never be part of my mindset or conversation to be like annoyed at millionaires or billionaires it wasn't that i wanted to like drag people down i was like i just wanted to get on yeah i think i wanted a fair crack of the whip
0: exactly i think that's what people want you know more of a level playing field Um, they want to see investment going into the places they live, as as, as we've already said, they want their kids and their grandkids to have opportunity, but they don't necessarily believe that they're going to get that, you know, at somebody else's expense. Um, And they're not, you know, they they don't wake up in the morning and think, let's, you know, let's get rid of a few, let's take out a few billionaires. That's just not (laughs) how they think.
1: Twitter and, and social media have the potential to play a huge part in these things. But actually, it seems that there's a great disconnect between what people presume is public opinion based on what they say specifically on, on Twitter and actually what the what the British public think. Did any of the respondents mention social media in any way and was it a positive or a negative influence on their vote?
0: They definitely did. Um, I think Facebook in particular, particularly with older voters, and, you know, don't forget how important those older voters are. There are lots of them and yeah. they turn out to vote. Um Facebook was very important. But I think what we found was that it's a lot of confirmation bias, actually. Um, People tend to tune in, and the way that the algorithms work, obviously, is people are served stuff that already fits with things that they believe. So I don't know to what extent
1: it changed people's minds. And what about the tone of the two parties? Did did people say, well, some of their supporters are very aggressive, and that's kind of put me off, or or was was that just the sort of thing I notice? being an obsessive
0: I think that's the sort of thing you notice I mean I think it's <laughs> I think it is worth just you know what we've found and Lord Ashcroft did this very helpful weekly poll tracking what people had picked up and the winner every week we looked at what people had picked up from the campaign was nothing I mean basically <laughs> week after week you know four out of ten of us were saying no nah, <laughs> not seen anything at all wow um, so you know and then when you ask them what they did see the things that they had picked up mainly were the missteps the you know so they Jacob Rees-Morgan the Grenfell thing for so instance, that really was something cut through that cut through I mean cuts through at quite a low level it was like I can't remember now 6% or something said they'd spotted that um, but compared to but other but compared things. with other things and compared crucially to the things that the political parties might have wanted you to pick up um, yeah they, they, people are not paying much attention
1: as well as the collapse of the Labour vote since 2017, obviously the general downward trend, it's remarkable that the Tories... I mean, obviously a marginal increase, of one or so percent, but that's the fourth election in a row where the a Tory vote share has gone up. Yes. this seems to be defying gravity. I mean, how much yeah. higher can it go? Yeah.
0: Well, at, or how much lower can Labour go? And I, I, I do think there's an important point to make here actually which I find a lot of people I chat to who are Labour sort of assume that Labour is currently at the bottom and I think that is that is a very risky assumption to make um, I think there is. I think no political party has a divine right to exist, and there is nothing to say that Labour doesn't have lower to go. Uh, and I think it's really important to to clock that, actually.
1: So, given the collapse of Labour at this election and its general malaise, and given that Brexit was such a big deal, but obviously Brexit as a as a on top of the underlying issues that we discussed, why didn't the Lib Dems do better?
0: Yeah, it's it's quite interesting, isn't it? We we looked at this a lot through the campaign. Um, actually, I, I I found that I I often wasn't repeating back some of the things that people said um, about the leader because it was quite sexist about Joe Swinson. about Joe Swinson. I felt that people some of the things that they said. So you know, I was saying earlier about you know if this if this um, politician wasn't a politician, what would their alternative career be? Hers was being a supply teacher.
1: And that's not seen as a positive thing?
0: Uh, Er it's probably not what you want in a leader necessarily. It's not a bad thing to be a supply teacher but it's, you know, there there was this sense person who's sort of a bit, you know, not managing to control the class very well Um, but I also felt there was a sort of slightly underlying strand of, and I found that people talked about her a lot saying that she was sort of strident. Um, You know, they were using language that I think they would only use in a negative way to describe a woman and, you know, I found that quite tricky and difficult but that said i mean there is no doubt that as their leader she did not help them and i think you know the one thing that people knew the one policy that that landed was the you know we're just leaving we go sorry we 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 we're, we're revoking, we're revoking yeah. um we're revoking and and that's that and people even remain voters found that
1: very uncomfortable they didn't like it and did that in itself that policy position do you think cost them votes yes i'm sure it did I'm so sure it wasn't it just they got squeezed in the context of yeah. a hung parliament, and that yeah. even you know some remainers could say, "Well, not Labour are the only game in town for trying to yeah. stop I'm sh- Brexit." I am sure that it cost them votes. Um, so the remain, the hardcore remainers, it turns out, are not weren't even prepared themselves to vote for. No. Well,
0: I mean, they obviously did. I mean, actually, you know, the Lib Dems did increase their vote share. I think it's worth remembering that. But again, you know, this is sort of partly about electoral strategy and campaigning strategy. They didn't manage to actually cut through and win seats. In fact, they lost them. So it was a problem.
1: I felt and maybe this is just a reflection of my own politics. I actually felt in the debates, she was the most impressive performer. I thought she gave... Better answers under pressure than the others. I thought she had a harder time than the others. She definitely had a harder time. I mean, that Question Time episode where they've loaded the audience according to basically vote share, so there were no left ends in the room. So you're going to broadcast someone who's bound to go down badly. Yeah. But I thought under pressure she was good. I thought she apologised for the right thing, just... I thought actually technically, if you were to take politics out of it, you'd say, in in a way, I thought she had the best campaign because she was giving difficult answers and i I thought she communicated well, she was strong under pressure, but maybe that doesn't matter and maybe I'm wrong. Well, I I, I don't think your view would be typical. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think we could say yeah. that. And I think that people didn't warm to her. No. And is that and as I say, I, I, you know, I felt uncomfortable listening to some of the things I heard in focus groups. I did feel that people were judging her differently because she was a woman and she was a woman that they uh, found hard to warm to.
1: And is that true of men and women or was it men more likely to say stuff like it that? It was true of both,
0: actually, but men more likely to, but but true to a certain extent of both. And
1: do you think sexism itself is a is a driver of who people vote for? If Labour had a female leader, would it make it harder for them?
0: Well, it's interesting because w- when I asked people after the election, you know, what should the new leader be like, there was a sense that it would be good to try something different. And and some people did say it might be interesting to have a woman. And it's, you know, it's bad that Labour's never had a woman. But I think in the end, where people come out is they want the best leader, whoever mm. that is. I mean, remember how popular Mrs Thatcher was at various... You know, and still I mean, is. And still is. In, yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, I... I I think in the end, people want the best leader. And for whatever reason, Jo Swinson did not seem to be that. And I think probably it's, you know, she presided over this policy that people found, people were quite offended by it. And do they you thought think, it was anti-democratic? Do you
1: think voters have different expectations of male and female politicians?
0: I think they probably judge women more harshly. They certainly judge women more on their appearance. But then, you know, going back to what I was saying about Jeremy Corbyn, I mean, he he was often criticised as being scruffy. I don't think he was particularly, but they felt that he was. They maybe that... maybe
1: he's not scruffy now. Maybe it's the old pictures well, they Well, no, I think that's right. It's, it,
0: exactly. I think there was a sense in the early days, um, you know, in the first PMQs where he wore his oatmeal suit and so on. <laughs> um, yeah, but... Uh, and I think those, you know, you, you have to sort of hit the ground running, I think,
1: as a leader. So... Um, for Labour's next leader, however that might be, and if, on the day that we record this, Keir Starmer is apparently the favourite. Yep. We know that these things can be volatile. And yep. We know that the complexion of the Labour Party actually might mean that Rebecca Bailey does better than people think, or who knows? Yep. And Lisa yep. Nandy's a strong yep. candidate. Um, I mean, do you... Uh, uh, by all means, decline to answer, but do, <laughs> do you have a sense of which one of those candidates would, would fare better for Labour in a future election?
0: I mean, I'm happy to answer and to say that I genuinely... You know, I think the jury is still out a little bit. Mm. Um it'll be interesting because of course it's not like a general election, so the postal votes will go out ahead of the closing day yeah. but which which they do in a general election, but then still the majority of people vote right at the end on the day. Some people do. But actually I, I suspect that most Labour Party members will vote as soon as they get their um you know, their voting slip through the post or or, or, or by email. So it, I don't know quite, I don't know if the campaign will then run out of steam. It will be interesting to see, but there's actually not that long to go on that basis. Um, so I, I I think you have to assume that, you know, it will be it it will be uh, you know one of one of the front runners, one of the people who are front runners now. There's not much opportunity for things to really change. And
1: for the for the deputy leadership contest, are the public tuned into that at all? Do you no. Think?
0: <laughs> they're not tuned into either, as no, I said. No. I mean, they're really not. I mean, you know, they, they, they would struggle. I think they, they know Keir Starmer a bit. Um, and he's got quite a good reputation. Um, and certainly some people through the campaign did say if it was him, um, it, it might be better, might be different. But they don't know much about him. And they certainly don't know anything about the, the deputy. I, I think it's quite interesting, actually. I think this whole time there is less awareness of... Of of some senior politicians than I've ever known there to be. So I think during periods in the Labour government... I suppose you had people who'd been in post for quite a well, long time. Well, that's what I was
1: going to ask, yeah. The churn um, has been so fast. Yeah,
0: but, you know, if you said to people, you know, name five people out of the Cabinet, I think most members of the public would be able to do that. I don't think they could do
1: that now. No, let alone the Shadow Cabinet. Let alone the Shadow Cabinet, yeah. I'm <laughs> sure I could, actually. So <laughs> even though we're saying a lot of these ex-Labour voters effectively lent their vote to the Conservatives. And I thought it was interesting that Boris Johnson, effectively his first words as a re-elected Prime Minister was that he understood that. And that he knew that people were lending their vote. And he he kind of seemed to understand the, the tone of that election result. That doesn't mean that those people have only lent it to the Tories for one go. I mean, I, I always think once people start voting in a way, it's hard to get them back out of that.
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. The big hurdle, and we know this from the way that people talked to us immediately afterwards, that, you know, it had been a big deal for a lifelong Labour voter to vote Tory in that sort of constituency. And and as I said, some of them felt that they had actually kind of betrayed their their, their, you know, their parents and their grandparents by doing so and felt bad about it. They felt sad about it. But now they've done it, it's just that little bit easier to do it again. Mm. But, you know, the jury is out. I mean, that's that's why I think this whole, you know, what happens next is is, is just going to be one of the most fascinating times uh, ever to really understand. I mean, I think genuinely everything is up for grabs.
1: And are Labour voters and Conservative voters or Labour voters in any other party different? When it comes to that emotional draw that the party has on them, do Tories talk to you in the same way of, you know, when they switched, saying, God, I'm, my granddad always voted Conservative, he'd be spinning his grave if he knew I was voting Labour? Or is that a uniquely Labour thing?
0: I think it's a uniquely Labour thing, actually. I I, I, I do think that... And it's partly because of the different party images. And, you know, I mean, Tories themselves have have said... We are the nasty party and this is something, you know, I, th- I think it's just not it's not a badge of pride voting Tory in the same way that it has been historically a badge of pride saying something nice about it. It's one of the reasons why in polling we've had this problem with shy Tories mm. historically and, you know, overclaim of Labour because it says something quite nice about you potentially to, to vote Labour. And that is different. And was there any shy Tory phenomenon this time? Well, no, I mean, the polls were reasonably accurate, weren't they? They seem to be, I mean, be, yeah. what, you know, I mean in, in our office sweepstake, um, I normally do quite well in that, <laughs> uh, I should say. And actually, I got the Tory vote bang on, but I overestimated the Labour vote. By how I, much? Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, by quite a bit, actually. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I thought the Tories would win, but I didn't anticipate this, that scale of victory. I thought Labour would do better than it did.
1: So the book, uh, Beyond the Red Wall, yep. will be out. When can people buy it? It's going to be
0: out uh, for, t- t- for for conference season, so September. I oh, haven't, haven't got actual, actual publication date yet. But
1: and you're going to be doing book signings and things down in... I don't yeah, know where the Labour conference
0: is. I don't are, either, but wherever it is, <laughs> wherever I'll be there. <laughs> and, and the Tories as well, I guess. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, and that work, as you say, you're going to follow a few people but but in in real detail so it's more uh, qualitative research yes it's going to be
0: qualitative research i mean i'll be looking as well at, at, at quantitative data that's available but but really i'm interested in kind of really getting under the skin of those voters really understanding them what their motivations are i want to kind of understand you know are we really dealing with new tribes in politics um or not Uh, Just the things we've been talking about now, you know, are, are these people how comfortable do they feel now they've taken that decision to stick with that decision? what would they need to see from Boris Johnson and his government? And, you know, we've yet to know what that might look like. I guess we're going to find out once we've got this Brexit day out of the way and then we will find out. But, you know, is that going to gel? And what does the new leader, whoever it is, have to
1: do? This is so exciting. It is very exciting. It's it's fascinating what happens now. And it is interesting, and I think, is this just a reflection (laughs) of my own politics? But oddly, Labour have just been thrashed. People seem to be talking more about Labour than they are the Tories, if people are talking about it at all. But even amongst politicos, what's happening in Labour is actually more interesting. I suppose perhaps because it's in an existential
0: crisis. Well, I think it's also because we've been in this rather weird period, haven't we, running up to Brexit Day, where nothing much has happened, but we're going to get a reshuffle um, on February the 14th. Valentine's, Day, Valentine's Day Oh my <laughs> word! Some broken hearts that night, <laughs> or something. Yeah. So, so that's going to. I assume that things are going to suddenly, you know, become more interesting on the Tory side as well. I don't know, but yes, I mean, the la- the labor con- the labor contest is interesting to politicos, as you say. As I said, it's not that interesting to the <laughs> wider public. I'm sorry, but it just isn't. Um, they're just not really noticing it very much. So um, there's a sense that you haven't heard much from Labour.
1: But your book, of course, appeals to all, all classes, all ages. Everybody, Every, should, everybody buy it.
0: should rush out and buy it. Yes. Uh, well, when it's
1: out, we shall we shall um, uh, we should auction off a signed copy or something. Uh, <laughs> yeah, very happy to for, for a lucky winner. Very but, happy um, to. Deborah, thank you so much for coming back in Great and pleasure. giving us the, the the benefit of your your genius. <laughs>
0: Well. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: good luck with great the pleasure anyway. Thank you very Cheers. much. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, I just I almost want when and I cannot wait to read that book beyond the red wall. And when it comes out, we will promote it on here so that we'll put a link up so that you can find uh, where to buy it. I almost wanted. I really wanted her to say, oh, if you're that interested, you could sort of come along if you like. But I I was too sad to go, oh, could I come along to some of these? I don't think it would be helpful having me there. But you'd like, oh, man, what a great idea. She's going to live with these people, spend all day with them. What what an amazing way to do some research and imagine the stuff that's going to come out in that. Maybe it's just me, but I find this sort of stuff, and I'm sure it's not me, actually stuff about polling and and opinion and all that, uh, as well as, you know, as much as politics about ideas and all the rest of it, those undercurrents, what people really think and what makes them vote, I just find absolutely thrilling. Um, so it was brilliant having Deborah back on. I'm sure we were like, I mean, we're going to have to just, we should have her on at least once a year just to tell us what the hell is going on out there. Um, and I will, the, that research is freely available, um, that research that uh, Deborah and Britain thinks did uh, before, during, and after the election. So I'll put a link to that as well in the show notes. Uh, email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com, and come and see me live, and you can get tickets to all my shows through the website mapfordcom slash live uh, on the 20th of February for the first time ever I will perform in crew at the lovely Lyceum Theatre on the 21st I will then go to Leicester at the Sioux Townsend um, uh, March the 5th the Darlington Hullabaloo which I love uh, on the 6th Hexham Queens Hall which is wonderful the 7th Bedford Quarry, which I've never been to before. Uh, the 10th, uh, the Southbank Centre in London. On the 14th, in Maidenhead, the Norden Farm Arts Centre. In uh, the 18th, uh, Leeds High Park Book Club. On the 19th, I'll be York at the Crescent. The 20th, Annick. And people keep telling me that's how to pronounce it. It's not Ulne Wick, It's Annick. I'm at the Playhouse on the 20th, Southend on the 22nd, uh, Cambridge on the 23rd, uh, London on the 27th, Brighton Comedia on the 29th. Now, some of these either have or are close to selling out, so um, do check on the website, matford.com slash live. Loads of other dates in there, including Cardiff, Newcastle, Glasgow, Aberdeen, Chorley, Camberley, Corby, Shrewsbury, Exeter, Bristol, Gloucester, Maidstone, Nottingham, Sheffield, Stafford. Eastleigh, Edinburgh I mean, I've added two or three, the list just keeps getting longer uh, and ends with two nights at the Edinburgh stand, so um, some dates may be added, but for the moment as far as I'm aware, that is the tour um, so go to mattford.com slash live where I'm coming to a town near you and get your tickets. Right, that is the end of this rampant self-promotion, I'll see you next week Ta-ra.